The following is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. <laughs> the Pizza Rob Port. It was a little weak. <laughs> Welcome to the winemakers, everyone. Hey, this is Brian Casey with uh, um, Bart Hansen today. <laughs> It's been a while since I uh, it's ran, like, ran the board. Yeah, the, walking uh, and chewing gum at the same time. On the podcast. Yeah, right? It's been a while. Um, John Myers, I think, is going to be here shortly. Sam Katuri off on assignment. Got Richard Bruno from Benham Cellars in the house today. Hey, guys. How's hey, it going? Richard, welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Good to be here. And uh, we're actually starting with a little of Dane Cellars' uh, Petit Sirah. Which is one of the oddest colored rosés that you will see out there. It really in is in the market, <laughs> especially behind this purple, um, uh, purple background we have here on our on right. our recording studio. Right. I mean, it's, that's when you when people say rust sometimes on wine. Um, <laughs> you know, th- you see like a bricolage or whatever. Th- this actually looks. I mean, it looks like a rusty beverage. Um, but it's actually delicious. I've had this. I think um, when you first when you first released it. So, Richard, where are you coming from today? Uh, I feel like today, where wasn't I? Uh, so oh, I had boy. to run up to uh, the the farm and uh, pick up my pickup truck. I had some empty kegs in there, which I'm returning to free flow today. And I had to pick up some labels at the winery and bring them down to the warehouse. So, uh, which is you know, Southern Napa. So yeah, that's, that's where, where I've been today so far, starting in San Francisco, which is where I live. Oh, so you, you live in the city and then, um, come yeah, up here and do, I have do, reverse commute. Yeah. Yes. Don't you have home base in Napa or is that not the case anymore? Uh, well, our, I've seen uh, some zoom stuff where you yeah. were in Napa, I think. Yeah. So we, um, Venom Cellars has the old Greenwood mansion that is on the Southern part of, um, Southern part of, uh, the airport. Uh, if okay. you know where that old Victorian oh, yeah. farmhouse yeah. is, it's kind of dark gray. Yeah. Now we bought it when it was that color, but yeah, it's a really cool building and our goal is, to have our tasting room in there and we had to get a zoning change because we were going to put in a cafe. All this stuff happened before COVID and sort of changed everything. So, I mean, wow, that's really cool that that's what you, that you guys have that and you're doing that. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful building. I've spent some time, uh, restoring buildings. I did my house or participated in rebuilding my house in the city. It was built in 1905. So I have, <laughs> wait a uh, minute, really? Some affinity for, is, for, uh, my house built in, your... in 1905 in San Francisco. So you'd think, okay, you're doing all this work. And then the next year right. shit gets shook to the core. Right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. No, it's interesting. All the records, uh, in that, um, fire were, were gone. Um, but if you go to the San Francisco Public Library uh, downtown near City Hall, at the very top floor, they have this incredible historical 
library and the librarians up there are super helpful and they can give you some tricks to figure out when your house was built even though the records may not exist so huh. they said that the very last thing that happens before um occupancy is plumbing they turn the water on right and so they turned the water on in 1905 so that means it was built or finished in 1905 yeah, yeah. Then all the records were gone, and uh, they ratified it as they were building the record space back and called it 1908. So that's how I know it was built in 05. And what part of the city is it? So it's DeBose Triangle. It's uh, kind of between the Mission, Lower Haight, and the Castro area. Yeah. Upper yeah, yeah, Market, yeah. I guess you could say. No, I used to live on Haight and Laguna. So oh, yeah. yeah nice. Yeah. That's yeah, a, just, up just the road. a stone's throw from where I yeah, live. Cool. Yeah, cool. Right by the DeBose Park. It's great. Um, have you ever seen the, there's some great video from 1906 where it's someone put a camera on a cable car that just goes down market street and it's going towards the ferry building. It's this old black and white video and people are kind of riding their bikes and riding horses through there. And it was, it was supposedly like days before the earthquake. Um, but it's a great, it's a really cool video that you can just pull up on YouTube. Um, that you know, I haven't it, seen it. I'll have to. And it's and it's to cool to see that. the ferry building, but then to see you know what people are wearing and the and for the, sure, um, yeah, yeah, dusty. Right. You, yeah, it sounds like you've seen that part. Yeah, I have. Yeah. So, so Richard, I want to go back a little bit. So, um, restoring houses was this something uh, when you grew up? Was your family in construction? Was uh, something you did in college? Was it you just like to fix things? Uh, probably the latter. Um, uh, everything you said sounds so much more romantic. I wish I built houses <laughs> while I was going through school. But um, I, my grandfather on my mother's side, uh, Joe, was my idol. And he taught me sort of to be fearless about tearing things apart and fixing things. And he taught me, the first thing he taught me to do is... Uh, a brake job on my 1966 Volkswagen Bug. And here's my grandfather who he must have been in his 80s or 80 maybe, late 70s, early 80s, climbing under the car with me and showing out how to pull a wheel cylinder out. And, you know, I learned so many things just from that one interaction with him from going to Sears to buy my first set of uh, open-end Craftsman yeah. wrenches. Yeah. And... um you know, just where to get the parts and how to bleed the brakes. And yeah. just, it was, it was, I remember it vividly. It was a great opportunity for me. And so uh, most summers we would travel. I grew up in St. Louis and my mother's from Baltimore. So we'd, okay. we'd go to Baltimore and my grandfather was a printer. So he used to do offset printing with a Heidelberg press in his basement so um huh. I used lots to, of cams and rods uh, yes and um i i i hate to say it I, I don't know how many winemakers love the smell of ink and chemicals but i have to out <laughs> well, myself my dad was a painting one. contractor so i'm kind of there so with there you, you go yeah. I, I still love the smell of uh of of printing and all the smells in printing so and it's because uh, of that um so uh and the reason why i i, I it, I was smiling is that you said something about like taking things apart and fixing them. And one of the first people that like, when I got into the wine business kind of taught me how to 
do anything was this guy Bruce Osterley. Mm -hmm. And we had our, our labeler at Kenwood was a World Compact CM7. Wow. And it was, I'll never forget this. And it was built in like 1956. It was originally used for doing Heinz ketchup. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Wow. And it was all cams and rods and stuff. And it would break down. And he'd just go, all right, mm -hmm. let's take it apart. And we'd take notes, you know, on how to, you know, theoretically how to put it back together. Um, but there's a, there is an adventure in that. Um, but you still, yeah, it's, it's a lot of trust. You have to be fearless. Yeah, so. no, that's true. I think a lot of people are... Like it's intimidating. Oh, you pull it, off... It, can, it certainly can be, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a number of ways to, uh, to ease the blow, I suppose. Um, you know, things like, uh, you know, number, you know, putting nuts and and screws in bags and numbering them right. or whatever, well now you just you take know? pictures and now you could just videotape yourself right, exactly the whole time being exactly. an idiot right and so wait <laughs> what i do let's go back and look at that yeah all right anyway. so you grew up in st louis was wine part of beer country um, yeah it was beer country it was wine for part sure. of your for sure uh, upbringing at all I, I feel like i need to first shout out uh st louis and anheuser-busch um because uh, the best beer probably the best beverage I ever had in my life was at Grant's farm when I was a kid. Uh, the coldest beer on a 107 degree day with, you know, a hundred percent humidity. Um, there was nothing more thirst quenching than that. So, um, that, that's another fond memory of my childhood. But, uh, my parents, uh, uh, well, first of all, my mother was an incredible home cook. Um, and uh, we ate, ate very well. Um, my parents liked wine, um, but I think the fashionable wine of the day, since we weren't in California, were things like Lancers and yeah. the sort of enamel-looking yeah. bottle and Blue Nun yeah. and my, my things like that. My parents were here in California, and that was what they drank. So right. I, I think it was more the industry hadn't grown into like that was where the industry was at the time for sure for so, sure yeah. and then uh they eventually transitioned into um you know they started stepping their taste game up a little bit and i still remember having had uh the charles krug chenin blanc well yeah which i later learned how it was made and that's somewhat horrifying but um wait wait, wait. wait. yeah, <laughs> we, get into that, yeah sure. we will uh john mckay story there but um but anyway, uh, they, oh, they also, let's see. Interestingly, they, 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 they drank Chenin Blanc and Petit Sirah was on the table periodically. So those were the two varieties I remember that oh. were coming from either Inglenook or Krug or whatever. Well, they had taste. <laughs> okay, seriously. So, sorry, Johnny, I didn't interrupt no you. So, hi, John Myers. Yeah, hi. Hey, welcome, hey. welcome, John. Um, so... So Chenin Blanc and Petit Sirah, I mean, I know you had a whole, um, you had a whole career before Venom, but was that what Venom was started on was Chenin Blanc and Petit Sirah? Yes, uh, specifically Chenin Blanc. So, um, if you allow me to sort of catch everyone up with, I, with absolutely. my, I was going to say, my well, I, I kind of, I kind of jumped in front of you there, but yeah, no, that's uh, okay. So go right ahead. So I was uh, I worked in the restaurant business when my family moved to California in 1982. Uh, we moved to the East Bay uh, in the Bay Area, and uh, you know, of course, aside from 
playing a lot of soccer and going to school. I worked in restaurants, started as a busboy. And over the years, um, I just became more interested in food and wanted to become a server. And I did that. I still remember um, I had this wonderful woman who was training me. And uh, sure, I had had wine before, but um, I didn't have a lot of service background just yet. And she told me, you know, listen, um, you know, the best way to learn how to open a bottle of wine is by doing it multiple times. And so every day after you finish your setup, your side work before the shift starts, come over and uh, visit Galen at the bar and he'll let you open all the wines that he needs before his shift. I thought, well, that's a pretty good for idea. For the by the glass uh, Exactly, wines. for yeah. the wines that, you know, these days yeah. we have screw caps and they're easy to open. It doesn't right. take any time. But in those days it was all just cork finish. So it was a great opportunity for me to really just kind of get my, um, get some, some experience opening bottles. And I don't know, it was six bottles a day or something like that. But I remember after I started developing a relationship with, uh, with this fellow Galen, uh, it was kind of one of those situations where, you know, hey kid, you ever try any of these? And I was like, no, <laughs> never mind that I was, you know, 17 years old. Or I was whatever. wondering how old you were at this point. Okay. <laughs> so he goes, he goes, I tried this one. It was pretty good. What do you think? And so then I started tasting wine with this guy every day. And, uh, it was just a great, um, introduction to not only to wine as a profession, but the experience and, to do so in sort of a, you know, these people knew more than me, maybe not a lot, you know, uh, of wine knowledge, but more than I did. And they were certainly more life experience. So it was a great uh, opportunity, some tutelage there. And it really kind of ignited my interest in wine. And so over the years, I worked in different restaurants and the restaurants got better. The wines got better. The food got better. And uh, soon after, I found myself in fine dining. And I was working in some really amazing restaurants in San Francisco. So from, you know, the Mark Hopkins to uh, Lascaux, uh, that's no longer here. Masses, that's also no longer here. Um, I worked at uh, Rubicon with Larry Stone for a a number of years. And then much later, um, probably landed the dream job as the bar manager at Zuni Cafe. Oh. But I had already started my we, career. We haven't been doing any of those that we've kind of The made. chicken. Yeah. The chicken. The chicken is <laughs> amazing. It's yeah. still there. It's a great restaurant. But, um, you know, I remember closing one night and, uh, you know, I, family at home and, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning and the homeless guy's banging on the door trying to get my attention for something. And I'm like, you know, it's three o'clock. I'm just leaving. This would have been the greatest job like six or eight years ago, but I'm like kind of moving on from this, you know, and I had already started Venom Cellars with Chris. Um, we went to uh, UC Davis and met each other there in 94, became pretty fast friends. We liked a lot of the same wines and that's how we developed our friendship. And when we graduated, we, um, I was working at Bonnie Dune as their distiller and Chris was at Pine Ridge and we set out to make Chenin Blanc financed on credit cards from a vineyard that we still get, the Wilson Vineyard Block 44. 
Um, and uh, Will, uh, Ken Wilson is our grower. He now has passed those responsibilities on to his nephews. Um, David Ogilvie's the the vineyard, uh, the guy in charge of the vineyard now. And uh, so it's just multi-generational. They started their farm in 1921, you know, row crops, beet, you know, beet farmers, I was uh, sugar beets. fortunate enough to, when I worked at Kenwood, get to know the Wilson family. Yeah. They used to buy Shannon from You know, from it's, it, it's, an, it's a great overlap because they used to kind of um, say, like, you, you guys are the new Kenwood boys. Yeah. You know, that's what they said about <laughs> us. So we were like the generation after you yeah. guys. Yeah, well, I mean, it, and, and that's so cool that, you know, you guys have... I mean, that's how I found about found out about you. It was because of Shannon Blanc. Yeah, you know, um, Bunsen, Yeah. Um, so working in restaurants was a great opportunity. I learned so much, and ha I was exposed to so many things. I mean, I still remember at Rubicon we had this Pichon Lalonde dinner, and it was just absolutely incredible. It was such a great dinner, and um, they brought Daniel Daniel Jonas from another master sommelier from New York. Uh, actually, I guess he's not a master song, but he's been a sommelier for years in New York. And so he worked at Montrachet. The one of the, the the sort of the main owner of Rubicon was Drew Niperant. And he was a, you know, sort of um, serial restaurateur in New York. And um, so he had a, a bunch of restaurants, but wanted to do a project in um, San Francisco. And so they recruited Larry Stone to do that. And Tracy, Tracy Desjardins, uh, who's an incredible chef, and uh, they put together so many uh, really wonderful team members. And of course, they had uh, um, celebrity investors: Robert De Niro, Robin Williams, right. and um, so uh, uh, and Francis Ford Coppola too, actually. And this is after Jardinier or before? Uh, before. before. Yeah, okay. She left uh, to start Jardinier. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, yeah, but, it, but it was spots. just a great, we, so this Pichon Lalonde dinner we had, <laughs> I'll tell from my perspective because it's a pretty funny story um, and sort of may out me in some ways, but uh, <laughs> worth it, I guess. Perfect place to do it <laughs> is on Stick the a microphone podcast. in front of me and I'll tell you <laughs> anything. Anyway, uh, so this, so we worked, um, when I uh, was working at Rubicon on the back end, end of working there I had already um, started going to school at Davis and I was actually commuting from San Francisco which was a little challenging but you know totally worth it um, how old are you oh god 24 okay. 25 okay. so um, so anyway I I decided because you really sort of have to be on the you know up to date with the menu and you have to kind of be on it and um, I just thought it, it probably would be better for me to move into the bar. And as it happened, there was a pretty strong bartender who was leaving to move to L.A. And I talked to uh, Elizabeth Takahuchi, who actually owns the Starling Bar in town. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's wonderful. That's okay. Yeah. It's all coming together because yeah. Elizabeth and I have known each other a long time. And, she is wonderful. And Part I of it, I know so she much. lived on um, Tracy's so property for a while. Him, yeah, uh, her and Jason. Yeah, yeah, and okay. Jason's great too. Yeah, they're really nice people. Anyway, so uh, she she uh, she was, uh, she, I guess she interviewed me, and she was like, "Great, let's do it." So talked to you know whoever the general manager was at the time to ask him if it's okay for me to transition, and I did that. And so then I was 
working in the bar on the weekends, Friday, Saturday, and uh, allowed me to go to school and focus on my studies and then also earn, you know, participate in earning money so we could pay rent. Anyway, um, a novel idea, <laughs> a, necess- a necessity, right? In the city. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but so fast forwarding. Well, anyway, uh, the, so the setup was, there was a service bar upstairs that had four seats at it. And, um, there's the wait, main, wait, wait, explain that. Why would a service bar have four? It was just sort of, you know, there was room for it. And, you know, okay. Cause just for people that don't know the service bar is typically when servers order drinks, it's where you can get drinks pumped out for a busy restaurant. So the service sure. bar kind of pumps out your cocktails instead of a busy bar where the, your showpiece bar, where people are sitting there and the bartenders are always paying more attention to the people in front of them because for sure they're getting tipped by those people as opposed to their tickets getting spit out of the for printer. Sure. For sure. Um, so that's weird to have a service bar that actually has yeah, it was seats a in small, front of it. You know, it's the upstairs seating and uh, it's also where the pastry kitchen was. Um, hmm. But, you know, and, and I should also point out that, you know, w- with, with what the focus of the restaurant was, uh, I was pouring a lot of glasses of wine. Yeah. Um, I made drinks too, but... It was very wine centric and yeah. food and wine centric, and I I enjoyed that experience. But you know, we would rotate uh, from bars, from the service bar upstairs to downstairs, and uh, downstairs clearly was the showcase. You walk in, and it yeah. was this beautiful bar with less seating downstairs, actually. But yeah, I would say that's sort of the more the VIP area on the main level. Mm. Um, they had four booths and the rest were open seating, but there must not have been more than a dozen tables, if that, mm-hmm. on the main level. Yeah. But um, but I loved it because I had more food knowledge about Tracy's food than anybody else behind the bar. And so we'd have people that would come in and they'd be waiting for their table, and sometimes they would just stay at the bar because they weren't missing anything. I knew everything about the food and they were already sort of set. I already had a bottle of wine open for them and they were just like, why leave? This is great. And the bartenders, the other bartenders loved it when I worked because we would just kill it. We would have, you know, usually like you say, you know, people come in for drinks and there's not a lot of food going on. you get a ticket average up and your tip's going to be a lot yeah, higher. Yeah, tip on a $350 so. check is a lot better than on a for $50 sure. check. Right. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. yeah. And and just a couple of those really makes your night, right? Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. For sure. So um, so that it was a really good experience and I felt like it was pretty symbiotic in that way. Um, but so, you know, sometimes I'd be upstairs, sometimes it was probably like one third, two third, you know, so the however the rotation worked, Elizabeth made it really... Um, equitable and fair for everyone, but there was this uh, Pichon Lalonde dinner that was coming up, and uh, it just so happened that I was scheduled upstairs, which kind of bummed me out. But um, Liz was really nice to approach me when I showed up to work and said, "Hey, look, you know, I know you'd rather be down here, but you know, it's just sort of the way the schedule felt." And I was like, "It's okay, don't worry about it." And then um, she said, but, you know, Larry said later we'll all taste the wines together once everybody leaves. And I was like, that's terrific. Great. So the whole night was really about just, like, get the night done so that get to the we good could shit. just, <laughs> yeah. you know, sit around with Larry and he could tell us all these great stories about each one of these wines. And um, 
So it was a pretty busy night. It must have been a Friday or a Saturday. Well, it would have had to have been a Friday or a Saturday night because I was working. Um, anyway, uh, Don Johnson and Cheech Moran came in that night with their entourage, right? Nice. And, uh, oh, it must have been 10 people or 12. And uh, they ended up, uh, we put them in Siberia, which is upstairs around the corner so that they were a little bit protected. And um, Good for everybody. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, they came in, they roll in at like nine or whatever. And so they're the last table there, right? So, um, you know, my, my buddy John, John Hope, who was, um, I think he was barbacking in those days. He became a bartender, but... He was nice enough to run, run up and sort of give me the play-by-play, and he, he'd tell me a few, oh, they just opened this, and they just opened that. And um, it was it was just an unbelievable experience. They had, well, I'll tell you what the vintages were later, but, um, but so everybody's gone from the restaurant upstairs except, you know, Cheech and Don and their entourage. And Don walked up to me, and he was asking about port they wanted a bottle of port so i talked through the ones that i knew and you know explained made a recommendation and he was like great well we'll have that well you know the cellar is two floors down we used to use the back stairs to get everywhere there weren't a lot of overweight people working at rubicon let me tell you <laughs> everybody was running up and down Stair those stairs yep. so i ran down got the port you know walked carefully upstairs because I didn't want to disturb the sediment sediment right. but uh decanted it for him did everything right poured it out and then um they were having a good time and then he came up to me and I thought well he wants to take care of the bill or whatever you know that was a great bottle of port can you recommend another one I said well we do have additional bottles of this if you like he goes we'd like to just try something else just why not I said okay fine so we talked through it again and he ordered a, another bottle and same drill, go downstairs, change all the glasses, right? Pour the, decant it, pour the wine. And at this point, I'm starting to get a little anxious <laughs> about what's going on downstairs, right? What you're missing out on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, John came up to reassure me that, you know, Larry said, don't worry. We're going to wait until everyone's gone, and then we're all going to taste the wines together as a group. And uh, so that put my eyes, uh, that put my mind at ease a little bit. And um, I think there was a third bottle of port, actually. And so did the, the, the drill one more time. And uh, I'm, like, completely clean behind the bar. I'm, like, done. My my drawer's all checked out. I, I've done my checkout. I'm ready to, to go. And right at this moment, John runs up and says, they're just about to leave. We'll be able to taste the wine soon. And... I was like, oh, that's great. And I was really excited. And at that same moment, right around the corner of Siberia, there's this sweetest smell of Sense Amelia coming oh, yeah. around the corner. Awesome. And then I had this d dilemma. I'd be able to tell my grandchildren someday that I got high with Cheech Moran. Right. Or I'd be able to taste these wines that never in my life I'll ever get to t uh, yeah. taste again. So you yeah. can imagine which I chose. Yeah. So That's these vintages were insane. There were two bottles from the 19th century. Whoa. There was Yeah, there was an 1875 and an 1893. <laughs> what were they? Pichon Lalonde Bordeaux. Ah, yeah, wow. It was incredible. So how did they turn out? Well, the eldest, by the time I got it to it, because, um, you know, there had been a couple hours since they opened yeah. it. But it was quite 
cloudy and almost milky looking. Yeah. It did seem to have wine like aromas, but it was just so far like aged out. And I'm sure it tasted differently when, when it was uh, or shortly after. Yeah. But by the time I got to it, it was pretty much peaked and, and, and f- fallen. And then um, the 93, however, and I love saying it that way because right. not the 1993, right. the right. 1893, <laughs> yeah. was gorgeous. And it was still youthful and uh, <laughs> <So> red fruit. <laughs> it was just unbelievable. But um, so our consens- consensus, though, John's and mine, they had a 26, which was also good. They had the 53, which was just a showstopper, gorgeous wine, so good. And then they had a 66, a 70, an 86, uh, and then an 89 and a 90. How much was this dinner? Oh, in those days, it was expensive. I'm sure it would be so much more now. But it was a thousand bucks a plate. Yeah. yeah. And these were collectors, so they may have been the ones who brought the wine. In right. Fact. Maybe they all huh. so yeah. actually if in that case, maybe it is a little pricey, but um mm-hmm. it was an experience and these people that's their life is right. tasting wines like this. Right. So yeah. but yeah, what a story, huh? I had my opportunity to, to get high with Cheech but passed. Um, what are you gonna do? Yeah, I know. I usually made the wrong decision in those um, <laughs> um, in those moments. Um, there are people would that would say I made the wrong decision. So I don't know. I mean, it wasn't like you. Yeah, it wasn't going to change your trajectory. Well, and based on vintages, I mean, I was like, no, I think you made the right decision. Um, if it was just some of some of their current releases, I would have said, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I, yeah. I totally would have yeah. made the, but when else are you going to go back in time like that? No, um, I yeah. don't think ever. Yeah. That's amazing. Not unless you're hanging out with Larry Stone more than I do right. these days. But right. Anyway. And, we, and so where, where was Rubicon? I don't know that I ever went there. Wasn't, um, I think the address is 558 Sacramento, and it's the current location of the Wayfair, Terra, uh, Wayfair Tavern. Tavern. Um, and that's okay. uh, one of Tyler Florence's places. Oh, interesting. Okay. City. I was a Kempton guy, so I worked, oh, at, cool. um, yeah. I worked at the Hotel Monaco at the Grand Cafe. Oh, I worked how cool. at Puccini and Panetti's and Scala's. And okay. Harry Denton would always show up at our That's fun. Um, and party with us. And, um, yeah, we had parallel lives, I think. We, knew, yeah. we probably know a lot of the same people. Well, and then, uh, then dated a hostess from the fifth floor, so then Raj uh, Parr. Um, was a psalm, so then we would end up at his house or you know, his apartment. You know, Raj Parr was a barback when I was at Rubicon. No shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think he would remember uh, me from back in the day, but we we would be at his house at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning and open sure. up some, some fun shit. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. And so, Jardinera was always a cool spot. There was one of my go-to spots for, for having a good dinner or a good bar experience. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think that might be where I first met Liz. Um was there Jardinera. And then we ended up working together a bunch of different um, scenarios, yeah. catering and yeah, um, sure. restaurants and stuff. So, yeah, yeah, Jardinera was a beautiful restaurant. They did yeah. a great job. Yeah. I loved how the bar was right in the middle of the room. Oh, yeah. Circular, really pretty. Totally. Um, all right, so you're going to Davis. You're working at a restaurant. And then first job, how do you get how do you land Bonnie Dune or is that offered to you or you see that it's, that's up for. So at Davis, um, 
they have a jobs posting. I assume they still do. It's probably online now, but um, they just had a bulletin board in the department, and you'd look on the board and see who was offering positions. And for the most part, they were internships that were being posted, but sometimes there were jobs. And um, I was taking distillation with Roger Bolton and learning all the theory of distillation. And I saw the posting at Bonnie Doon for a distiller. And I just thought, you know, I've, I always wanted to work for Randall. And um, yeah, maybe not as a distiller, but um, right. I just think the opportunity to work with him would be, um, you know, sort of a once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah. I mean, he's he's a very iconic. Um, he is, and um, person. He's uh, yeah. well. He's he's a literary genius, um, and he's really just a sweet man. He's a wonderful person, but he's yeah. very um, experimental and yeah. um, sort of always seems to be like on a quest for knowledge, you know, and and to some extent, you know, fearless, like not afraid to, without a doubt, not afraid to do something and preach it and then turn around and go the other way. Yeah, Um, for sure. You know, and, and, and test things. So, but I'm just thinking it's, you're, you know, he's definitely not making Shannon Blanc or Petit Seurat. He's probably doing, you know, it's mostly Rhone, Rhone stuff, right? Yeah. Um, which I was super into and, yeah. and I love those wines. And, and was I, it in Santa Cruz or wh- where was the job? The job actually was in Santa Cruz in the mountains. Okay. So yeah. their original, where their tasting room was. Yeah. And that's where the still was. It was just a, a single Holstein or Holstein still. And as a single batch, um, Mm. copper still and, and and what was the product that was made so it was making eau de vies and grappa yeah. so okay. yeah. um and, but then we did some other things to try to um you know maximize the use of the facility it was just two of us up there myself and dave and um we we just did what we could uh distilling is you know you ferment you make your wine or your beer and then you you know you boil it and distill it down and so we were doing that all day long but the still you know it's it's a slow process yeah. right so there was lots of other time to do other work and so i uh, worked on the first cardinals in that they made you know the ralph mm. stedman label yeah that wine was really good um and then we did the uh, old telegram uh blend and uh the some of the uh, the cigar one of the vintages of the, of the cigar wine too yeah. So, you know, it wasn't like I didn't have any opportunity to make some of those wines. And it mm-hmm. was really uh, a great opportunity that was afforded me, for sure. And But that's a different drive, too. I mean, going San Francisco Davis and then going San Francisco Santa Cruz. Oh, my God. Santa I, Cruz? I, my <laughs> commutes were stunning. I mean, yeah. I get to drive Highway 1 every single day yeah. to go to work. Yeah. It was always beautiful yeah. every yeah. single day. It didn't matter what the weather was doing. It was always gorgeous. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I miss I miss that actually. Huh. It was it was beautiful yeah. and very peaceful. Like my commutes have always been reverse commute, so not right. trafficy, which is great. Yeah, totally. But to do it along the beach every day, I mean, who wouldn't take that? Yeah. All right. So you're getting an opportunity to play around with wine. What's the next step after? Um, Let's try that Chardonnay. You got it. Yeah, so this Insider Chardonnay 22 from Carneros here in Sonoma. We kind of waxed over the Shenan. Um, it was delicious. Thank uh, you. Yeah. Uh, it happens. It just goes down easy and you move on to the for next. For sure. 
<laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's nice. I love the acid on it and the minerality too yeah. is, is really nice. Yeah, I mean, we yeah. get, you know, getting back to Clarksburg, I mean, you know, the Wilson family, they, they've been growing it for years. I think there are, you know, I'm a believer that certain varieties should be grown in certain places. And hard to say that Chenin Blanc doesn't completely prove that. Mm-hmm. Um, but most winemakers would agree the best Chenin Blanc in California comes from that appellation. And we seem to think that it's from this specific vineyard. It's right. done really well for us. Right. Um, and and you, at this point, those vines are have some age on them. For sure. Yeah, they are older vines yeah. now. So, yeah. So, um, so, yeah, Chardonnay. You know, I'm not a big Chardonnay fan. I mean, I, you know... I'll drink white burgundy all day long for sure. And it's not that I don't think that um, some producers here do a good job um, replicating that style um, or being inspired by that style. But it's just not my go-to wine that sort of makes me happy. Um, And maybe part of it's because it was so popular when we started um, making Shannon right. that I still have a chip on my shoulder about it, but as you should, I just don't really, um, like sometimes I just want to have a glass of wine and enjoy it. And I don't like it. The older I get, even with beer, I, I love all kinds of beer, but you know, when I come home from work and I'm hot from working in the vineyard, I want to drink a Modelo. I don't want a yeah. double IPA. Right. Right. And so I sort of, consider chardonnay similar in that regard it's like if i want something refreshing it's not going to be a chardonnay and for most people maybe not most people but for many people um chardonnay is sort of the the white wine you drink and i think the industry foisted that uh, on us sadly and uh anyway (laughs) after they um, ripped out all the chenin blanc you mean right i mean to (laughs) the demise of chenin blanc yes exactly Yeah. yeah so so why do we make chardonnay well you know, it's it's so funny. Like, like we started this company on credit cards, right? Start with Chenin Blanc, and uh, boy, that's an uphill battle, right? It's just starting a company right. anyway. Um, and then we had really good success. And looking back, maybe it should have been a little surprising that we were that successful. But there was something about our label that really appealed to uh, kind of an F the man audience, you know? which I think we capitalized on whether we knew what we were doing or not. I don't know. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Because you guys were one of the first to my memory to kind of change the norm on the label in the F the man, you know, kind of attitude, you know, not the traditional label. You, you're kind of poking fun at yourself, having fun with it. Sure. Was that was obviously a thought, a thought <laughs> process. Well, First of all, when I was working at Bonnie Dune, I feel like um, Randall speaking of Randall yeah. <laughs> gave me, he, you know, I worked for this person and he showed me, almost gave me permission to have fun with labels. Right? Yeah. He showed me that it's okay, yeah. and uh, and and so I think I was inspired by that. But our very first wine was very pretty and almost okay. conservative looking okay it was called point blanc uh, we later found out that that was a trademark owned by peter michael so we had to change the name hmm. the wine later became white elephant um, but that was a blend of chenin blanc 
Viennier and Roussan, and it was all barrel fermented. It was a really good wine. Uh, we ended up stopped making it just because we make a Chenin, and at some point things get a little crowded. You know, you make too many wines, um, and that's happened to us uh, more than once. Um, but it was uh, we were trying to get a wholesaler in, I think it was New Mexico, and it was the wine patrol guys, and we sent them. We had extra Chenin Blanc left over after making the Point Blanc blend in 98. And we sent them samples and we mocked up a label and they said, we love the wine, we love the price point, but are you guys opposed to humor on a wine label? And then that we were just like, okay, you asked for it, right? And that's yeah. what we came up with. We went to Clarksburg, we took um, pictures with an old Nikormat camera and that's what we came up with, with a picture of Chris and I hitchhiking in Clarksburg with the sign that says, we'll work for Shannon. So it was sort of like that can-do attitude, that sort of like, you know, pulling yourself up from your bootstraps. Um, and also, you know, I'm hitchhiking. You can th see my thumb. It was intentionally, my hand was intentionally oriented to sort of be giving you the bird instead mm -hmm. of the thumb. And that was really the message that we were trying to broadcast to our audience is that, you know, like, fuck Chardonnay, you know, like, yeah. this is really good. And it's almost ruined all of it. It's almost been completely ripped out because of the popularity of this other varietal. Right. So. But also fuck price point, right? Because you guys are probably you're coming in at a price point that is lower than Chardonnay's, but you think the wine is better than, yeah. and it's kind of a F you to that too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, we, we, we always wanted to make wine that we ourselves could afford. Yeah. And I feel like we're, we're still the, the same people that started the company yeah. and that's still our philosophy today. That said, uh, costs have gone way up. Yeah. And so we have to price our wines according to, you know, having to make a profit. You Can know? you put a percent on the increase in costs to say over the last five years, 25, 50%? Yeah. I, I won't answer that question specifically, but, um, I'll just state the obvious one, which is interest rates have doubled. <laughs> so like we went from paying, uh, interest that was manageable to now it's the same as like, you know, it's a six, di six digit salary, right? So that I'm paying an interest, right? So, you know, <laughs> I don't have an answer for you. Um, if I knew I'd probably just barf it out cause I don't have a very good filter, but, um, but yeah, I think when interest rates double, um, that plays into the calculus pretty harshly. Yeah. Well, and John, you know, glass was hard to get for a long oh, time. Oh, absolutely. Label and then, everything. And then I don't know if cost of fruit in Clarksburg, because I think we, and we're in such a little bubble here because, you know, Bart, everyone I know makes wine. And so I don't know if um, Clarksburg has sort of gotten a reputation for doing Chenin Blanc. And I think Chenin Blanc probably is probably as popular as it's ever been since the 70s. Um, so I don't know if fruit, fruit prices, um, are getting higher. Um, they seem more commensurate with what John's asking. Um, they've had to raise their prices relative to the costs that have been handed to them. Yeah. And so, um, but you I know, made, the costs of fruit going up, 
glass issue. I mean, the mm-hmm. real criminals in this whole thing are the shippers because no. I don't know if you know this, but it used to be $1,500 for a container to ship anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And during the pandemic, they put a two in front of that number. Yeah. So every container was $21,500 instead of $1,500. Whoa. So Whoa. that's what screwed everything up. Yeah. Um, and it's unfortunate. And the companies that, you know, glass companies making glass overseas, bringing it over, had to find a way to, you know, they didn't just directly pass that cost over. They had to pass some of it over and you know that and paper for labels was going up. I mean, just everything went up. And so I think each of us in all parts of the chain, we didn't raise, we didn't pass it on entirely. So because everyone sort of softened the blow a little bit, I think it was manageable, but, um, but it was a huge, huge impact. And, prices have been coming down now i don't know what a container price is now i know it's not twenty one thousand dollars anymore but that's that's, crazy that's gouging yeah and that's that's where i think the government should step in and they didn't as far as i know or maybe they did but they allowed it to happen but it also has a it promotes making and this is where you know it gets a little sticky it sort of promotes making things here in the united states right when when those prices are high then people might get off their ass and say, okay, let's open up this factory again and actually start making glass here in sure. the U.S. Well, the glass factories are just ginormously cash-intensive and energy-intensive, right? So, um, Not very it's, California-like. It's a, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, maybe they should just build them in Nevada. They don't care about that there. So, and then just truck it over, there. right? <laughs> anyway, um, so that's part of the problem. And, you know, it's all the glass factories here that went and built and set up these glass factories in China yeah. and in other places like Taiwan and maybe Mexico as well. But part of it is just uh, trying to manage the demand, right, yeah. has been the problem there. But uh, anyway, look, so we make Chardonnay. Why? Um, not because I love Chardonnay. I, I know how to make it, and I know what a good one is, and I will certainly drink it. It's not my number one choice. But there's a, a lot of popularity with, you know, heavy ML Chardonnays. And um, what we try to do is we try to reduce the amount of diacetyl so that the wine is more creamy as opposed to super diacetyl so right you're stirring you're doing a lot of stirring yeah. uh during the barrel process less and, butter and yeah less butter simple yeah. as that yeah. so um so the the wines i feel like all of our wines have really good acidity that's important to us because we think that wine is Thank supposed you. to be food friendly yes mm-hmm. um and we think both of our chardonnays um accomplish that mission our other chardonnays from monterey yeah so no it's great and we're actually drinking it warm and it's about 75 yeah. degrees outside Yes. And it's still delicious. Yeah, it's delicious. Still, oh, that's right. good. Yeah. Good yeah. to hear. No, that's, well, a, that's a good sign. <laughs> but I'm just going to say, I, I'm digging the temperature that we're drinking it at. Yep. I mean, it's a nice, nice yeah. one. I mean, John, Chardonnay, Marsan, Roussan, a little bit warmer is not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's go. I mean. Where to next? First of all, did you say that your partner is, is making wines for Pine Ridge? Uh, at the time, uh, when we started the company, yeah. Okay, yeah. not anymore. No, 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 no. We okay. both left. Uh, I want to have a jobs. conversation with those people. Yeah. Um, 
make Viognier or make Chenin Blanc. Why do you have to blend those things together? <laughs> I love Viognier and I love Chenin Blanc. Why do you got to put them in the same bottle? Yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's a good product. And um, there's, it's so funny. Like people, people even sometimes think it's a Viognier. Yeah. Like even people in the industry that should know better think that their Chenin Blanc Viognier is actually a Viognier. No. And it's like, are you confusing that with Klein or what? What? Why? Well, I don't understand I, I why. I mean, it's the the whole thing for me is the two different varieties. Like, Viognier is an impactful wine. It's kind of as we've had these discussions about Grenache and Syrah. Like, Syrah makes a big impact on Grenache. Yeah. Um, Petite Syrah makes a huge impact on Zinfandel, right? Yeah. So it's a very fine line with what you can put in there. In my mind, I don't know. <clears throat> It's just, it's just annoying to me because I love both <laughs> grapes and I don't know why you have to mix them together. But I can see maybe the thinking being, hey, these are two grapes that maybe a, a lot of people don't know about. So, so to so, get them to drink it, maybe let's yeah, put them well, together. I mean, they're, right. And so we're kind of killing two birds with one stone. They are pretty different. Yeah. I mean, Viognier is, you know, super f- perfumed and yeah. it's got all of Oily its... And, yeah. Yeah, I find Marsan more oily, but yeah. still. But it is, it has more uh, glycerin, I guess. It's yeah. got more mouthfeel to it. And usually when made well, it, the alcohols are higher because you pick it ripe. Chenin Blanc is almost the opposite, right? It's picked underripe, acidities are high or higher. So then maybe when you blend that in, it sort of takes it down a little and balances out. We, we did it for a couple years and it, it just didn't really move the needle the wines were good but it just didn't yeah it you know it was more their thing than ours um yeah. so we just decided to just stick with our regular chenin blanc thank you we know what it is and <laughs> it's clean and you know we're the label's a little bit more pretty restaurant appropriate but then yeah. on the inside back of the label right. and you look through the bottle you can see our original label with chris and i hitchhiking so yeah. we we haven't forgotten the past trying to celebrate it and sort of a more discreet way i guess right so uh venom wines are available all across the united states right theoretically yes theoretically yeah (laughs) right (laughs) our distribution partners uh have uh done a pretty good job uh, well they've taken a long break from covid uh yeah so we're trying to get them reignited i think part of the problem there is that you know every company with multiple employees most likely had to lay some people off. And um, we were pretty heavy in restaurants and (laughs) our marketing people could never tell us what the split was, but during the pandemic we figured out that we were 80% in restaurants and restaurants all closed for at least some period of time because of the pandemic. And I think there was a shuffling of uh, people and uh, there were probably people that were close to retirement age that just said, I'm done. And then there are other people that, you know, they they had to move on for whatever reason and they now work for a different wholesaler. So they know our wines, right. but they're not th- out there selling our wines anymore. They're selling oh. some of our competitors' wines. So we have a national sales manager that's out there trying to, you know, reinvigorate the brand and remind people who we are. What's crazy is that so many people that he works with love the wines, but had no idea before that day that they're even in their book. Right. And that's sort of what's going on with distribution in America today is that yeah. there's just so many products in so few wholesalers that 
um, you know, I learned really quickly that you can't buy my wine in a store if it isn't on the shelf, right? <laughs> I mean, <Yeah. laughs> you need to be there or you're not going to be one of the chosen few, right? right. So um, that's a difficult reality to understand uh, for some people in distribution, but for us it's essential uh, for us to be at all successful. So we realize we've been working really hard on trying to get that message out and I feel like we're still pretty value oriented yeah. in terms of the climate of other choices that there yep. are out there. But we also really have kind of the wine pyramid, right? We make wines that are m- mid tier pricing and uh, very top tier in terms of uh, cost quality. Yeah. And uh, you get closer to the top of the uh, pyramid and you have a smaller production too. That's why the pyramid yeah. gets smaller the point gets smaller. So, um, so that's, that's really, you know, I brought you some wines that represent that the Chardonnay is sort of a mid tier, uh, $30 Chardonnay. And then the scrapper is 35. And, uh, then I have our, uh, estate vineyard, uh, Hoffman block Cabernet from Napa, which I farm myself. I'm like, ridiculously sore from netting this weekend so, oh my god so that so why don't you awful. why don't you back up and talk about that because acquiring an estate vineyard in napa valley is not for the faint at heart um you know on our show we've talked to some people who farm over there and we know how expensive it is and we know how expensive the real estate is and can you tell us how your you know how'd we do it how how'd you guys do it well, so I mean, you're first, a lot bigger than a lot of our guests in sure. size of winery, but you're still just two guys, you know, you're, yeah. you're still, you're still just Venom sellers, which started, you know, very modestly, as you said, you yeah. know, finance with credit cards. Yeah. Well, so we've been getting this fruit, uh, since 2005 or I should say I've been working with this fruit since 2005. I first discovered it um, uh, when I was working at Don and Sons and I was out looking for grapes and um, one of the brokers turned me on to this location and I showed up and I was buying a lot of Napa grapes and it was a good time to do so because the prices weren't so bad. But... um, when I arrived there, just there was something about the site that I, I found special. It was just, uh, I don't know, maybe Randall Graham might say it had good feng shui or something, but it just, it, it felt really good. And the way it was, um, the vineyard was laid out, it was, you know, running uphill and uh, Cabernet, um, Clone 23, the Laurel Glen clone. Cool. So it's a smaller uh, grape variety. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been friends with Patrick Campbell for a number of years. He's a good friend. Um, so, that you know, that was a good thing about it. And uh, so, you know, I worked with the fruit and, you know, it went into a much larger blend. But the fruit, the quality of the fruit from that first vintage, I knew it was really, really good. And so then the next year they were looking for a contract. And, uh, you know, it's an eight-acre piece. So we must have gotten 12 to 16 tons. So that wasn't going to hurt Don and Sons, right? It's another, you know, Planca wine (laughs) that they wouldn't have to worry about. I'd just buy more from somebody else. And the wines were great anyway, so it didn't matter. Um, 
So we signed a contract for like three years and um, just kind of kept renewing that every year. So 16 was our first vintage. Uh, 16, there I go again. 2006, pardon me, was, uh, was our first vintage with this. And uh, we just, you know, made it every year and really liked the fruit. And then after talking to our grower, the Hoffmans, they, they seemed, there's something about our conversations that seemed to suggest that maybe they're kind of not into doing this anymore. So it was like our, our <laughs> penultimate. <laughs> our, was it one particular <laughs> thing yeah. they said? Yeah, read not, what you want into that. Not really. <laughs> okay. Sort of a number of things that I now know what are, but. Uh, seems to be a little cold. So I went to renew the contract and I put a clause, a first right of refusal clause in the contract. And I told them, pointed it out. It's not the same contract. I added a, this little thing. They were fine with it. They signed the contract. Then the next time, next three years goes by and then renewed the contract again. And, um, they, they signed it. And then in 2018, I got a phone call from one of the owners um, and she said, Hey, uh, we decided to retire and, um, we, we we're well aware you have a first right of refusal in the contract. So here you go. I'm just <laughs> telling you, I'm giving you, this is your notice. So I and said, did that come with a number or did they let well, you extend I the number? These types of questions anyway. So, uh, so I said, well, so when are you? when are you going to list the property? And she said, tomorrow. <laughs> and I said, oh, thanks for the heads up. That's yeah, awesome. Seriously. Yeah. Appreciate the runway there. Anyway, it got us in, in motion. And the first thing I had to do was, uh, you know, report it to my company because Venom Sellers has the contract and I'm not the only owner. So I talked it over with Chris and, uh, you know, he just, he, he had just started horse and plow and, it just wasn't the right time for him to, to do that. So he said, you know, I'll pass, but if you want to do it, go for it, you know? So I was trying to figure out how I was going to swing it financially and, you know, talk to my wife and, you know, I said, look, we, you know, we do have a duplex in the city and I thought, well, we could just sell one of them and that's how we could get the money to put down on that property. And, you know, my wife was like, uh, I really want you to, I want to get this property, but I also don't want to sell downstairs. And I said, well, yeah, I understand that, but something's got to give here. Right. So one of my best friends, uh, Sam Balakian, I've been making wine with him for years down in Paso Robles. He owned SVP winery and, uh, he's kind of like, kind of like a father to me. He just gives really good advice and, you know, f from financial to circumstantial to winemaking, whatever. So I called him because I wanted his advice on, you know, what, you know, here's my situation and I'm starting to think I, you know, I, I can see how I can pull this off, but I can sell this property. I don't really want to, but I feel like I kind of have to, but now I'm also having this weird feeling that maybe I'm too close to this. Like maybe the desire to want this is exceeding whether or not this would be a smart financial move. So it was just simply trying to get his advice and he goes well it sounds like you need a, a business partner and I said well you know I, I told Chris and he he just doesn't want to do it and he goes no no I mean me me and Valerie his wife and I said oh 
uh, well, that's not really why I called you. And he goes, I know. <laughs> so I said, okay. Well, by the time that phone call was over, he said, well, you know, we'd like to participate. And I said, would you like to see the property? And he said, not really. We trust you. So that's sort of how it, it started, and that's how it became possible. I did make them come up and look at the property. But in 2018, we were able to buy it. Um, I'm on the hook for half, and and uh, Sam and Valerie uh, bought the other half. And are they taking some of the fruit and make and then... They are not. So okay. that circumstance is so... Unfortunately, Sam passed away in 2020. Um, and, uh, they did end up selling the winery and came out whole. They, they got the, Valerie did a really good job of making sure that she, you know, uh, got the price that Sam expected. And, uh, so now she's, (laughs) she's, I think too young to be tired, but she put in a lot of hours and deserves it. So, um, we're business partners now and Venom is the sole purchaser of the fruit. Um, we're, we're starting to expand a little bit. We have two, three new blocks, actually. One of them's Merlot, which I named after my daughter, Rosemary. Um, and then I named the high-density Cabernet hillside planting after Sam. And then um, we have a small Cabernet Franc behind the house, which I named after my wife, Anya. Hmm. So, so you've expanded. You, it was eight pl- acres planted yes. previously, and now you've expanded it to how much? It's an additional... Uh, probably I, I did some extension work on the eight acres and that's probably close to nine now. Yeah. And then with the other two, three, uh, blocks, it's probably a total of just under 12, 11 and a half acres cool. probably. And whereabouts in Napa is it? So we're on the east side of the valley, right off of Monticello road. Oh, yeah. uh, we're about 600 yards from Atlas peak and, uh, we're very close to wooden valley, but sort of more on the Berryessa heading towards various and it's all hillside they the so the original uh block which we call hoffman we named after the people we bought it from um that's all hillside and they run up the hill and then sam's block is more of a contoured um block on a on a curve it's somewhat terraced in certain areas of the block and then uh, rosemary's is uh pretty flat and then the Cabernet Franc behind the house is also on a hill, but it's a pretty narrow band, so it's not like a terrorist or anything. So. Okay, so and I think we started this conversation talking about a house with possible tasting room slash food, <laughs> yeah. right? So yeah. is so is this like what's going on with that? So yeah, I, I think the best way to describe it is I, I've been trying to put these pieces together and um, the goal was uh, to take our office, which you know will have a tasting room at some point, and uh, put a, a cafe in there, and then you know that would you know feed the, the Are you local insane? neighborhood. You're- are you gonna serve chicken there? It, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a good idea. Get the the uh, Zuni recipe. No, we're just thinking simple. Order at the counter. Yeah, uh, take a number, and we'll bring your food so, or ring the bell when in your food. Retention. Ready. So keep people on the property. Get them to come in and taste some wine and eat some food and let them hang out. Yeah. Well, in the so there's two different locations. The vineyard location okay. is kind of more remote. It's it's near Circle Oaks, where, mm-hmm. if you know where that is. Um, and uh, uh, the 
the office tasting room is uh, closer to civilization, right? It's mm-hmm. near the airport in Napa Airport. Okay. And it's a great location. It's a beautiful um, farmhouse, yeah. Victorian farmhouse. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of people looking for somewhere to get lunch down there. For sure. There's really nothing right, right. now. And huh. so that's been part of my dream to, to put that together. But what, you know, the COVID really just kind of destroyed our entire business in terms of selling through distribution the and momentum. we have to yeah. fix that before we can take steps now? forward. Do you do any uh, direct to consumer at all? Yeah, it's just through the, um, through the website, but we also are now starting to do uh, tastings by appointment. So they're winemaker led tastings. So it'll be Chris or I that will uh, do these tastings. We've got 18 time slots per week at the mm-hmm. moment during the week. We're looking at maybe trying to expand those into the weekend because that's generally when most people come. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's probably our next step right now. But if you go to our website, venomsellers.com, there's a talk page right mm-hmm. on the splash page, and you can sign up for tastings um, there. Cool. And we do five wines and taste you through them. It's only 50 bucks. I think that's a pretty, pretty you know, good Is price. it these four wines and then one other? The ones yeah, that we're trying today? Um, yeah, it would be... A collection like this or uh, or very similar so probably okay. two heavy serious reds right. um, a Pinot Noir most likely uh. and then uh, the two whites a Chenin Blanc and a, the Sonoma Chardonnay okay cool so and the Pinot Noir from um, we have two ones from the Sonoma coast and the other right. ones from Monterey so we probably okay. you know invert the Chardonnay and the Pinot selections because we have two Sonoma selections and two yeah. uh Monterey. How different yeah. is the Monterey? Well, we make the wines very similarly. Same clones, in fact. Uh, same clone of Pinot, but also do the same barrel fermentation and the stirring. So it's interesting to taste those wines side by side because yeah. they're very similarly. They're made the same way, same clone, different locations. Um, but they, uh, it just, there's, you know, it's a terroir difference, I suppose. Uh, to me, there's a little bit of a concentration difference. I feel like Sonoma is a little bit more concentrated generally than our Monterey. I'm sure there are other Montereys that are super, super high end, mm. but ours is uh, really, I, I think they're both really tasty wines. And I th- think they quality wise are well suited for the, um, for the appellation and the price points. Yeah. You know, so. and will you mention the price points on all these wines? I think you did on the scrapper but could you go through them one more time yeah so the chenin blanc uh is our 18 dollar offering um the chardonnay here the the insider sells for 30 dollars um the scrapper is 35 dollars that's a cabernet franc head trained from el dorado at 2400 feet and uh aged in uh french oak for 26 months we only make 500 cases of that how do you sell it for that price? I guess the, the price of the fruit dictates that from Cabernet. Yeah, from somewhat. From it's you know I still think the wine is probably worth more than what we're charging yeah, for yeah. it, but it's somewhat niche. Um, so we yeah. want to make sure that we um, don't put ourselves out of the running for some placements. Yeah. Um, so those are the reasons why there are a lot of wildfires up there. So there was no twenty vintage, no twenty one vintage. We ended up making a rosé out of the 21 vintage because we wanted to help our grower. Cabernet Franc rosé. Yeah. What did, you, did you sell it on? Where did you sell it? Yeah, we just, we did, we, 
we sort of chickened out and bottling it, which is too bad because the wine was really good. So we just bulked, I've never had a Cabernet. We bulked Rose it out. Totally it was good. Curious, it was yeah. really really nice. Okay. Um, I had a lot of experience with uh, Napa Cabernet Sauvignon mm-hmm. as rosé, and there are a lot of producers in Napa where we make our wine at Napa Wine Company. Mm-hmm. And uh, years ago, Pam Starr offered me her Seignier, and we had just pulled the Seignier out of our Syrah and it was black like Petite Syrah (laughs) and I was scratching my head right at the moment where she offered me her Seignier and I was like oh problem solved what is it of and she said Cabernet Sauvignon and I don't think she saw my face but I was like (laughs) that sounds disgusting (laughs) but I decided that you know we'll try to make it as best we can and if it doesn't come out we'll just dump it down the drain no big deal right came out great yeah. Hmm. So with that in mind, making a Cap Franc was essentially the same thing. Yeah. And it came out really nicely. Really pretty color, too. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's, you know, we had a 22 vintage, which is great. Uh, God willing, we'll have a 23 vintage of the scrapper. Right. And uh, we're all just trying to put our boots back on and get back out there, you know. And then um, what price on? And the Hoffman Block Cabernet is, uh, it's $85 for, uh, you know, top tier Napa Valley Cabernet. It's uh, obviously the fruit's very expensive. The Napa average is now over nine thousand dollars a ton. I was just going to ask that. Is it down this year a little? Um, I know the number is like ninety-one forty-eight or something. So we had seen down uh, a little. Who cares? We had seen some results of of a a glut of cab on the market from Napa. A while back and you know it, was, it seemed to be affecting the prices but you know when when we talked with andy beckstoffer about uh, prices how they used to be set by the government just like oranges that was it it was a commodity crop and like mm-hmm. 700 dollars a ton <laughs> and you know now it's just it's so different now but yeah you can't even farm it for anything near that so Richard, the labor costs are high so what's um You've been at this for a while. Um, what's some things that you look at the wine industry that um, if you could, you know, in your magic eight ball, um, wonder what's going on? Uh, what, what's some things that you're excited about and what's some things that you ponder, like how are we going to get through this? Well, um, it's sort of two silos for me. Um, the first is that um, I, I think about, innovation for our industry and I've been making wine for 30 years and I kind of came to the realization that our industry has really done a disservice to um, the idea of innovation because I mean it's sort of like like custom bottlers are even you know you can have a 750 or a 375 bottling and it, you can have a cork you can use a natural cork or a synthetic cork or you can, we now offer screw caps like and you can have a ROPP screw cap or we could have this fancy Stelvin style screw cap and that, that's that's the degree to where I think we've gotten in innovation and now during COVID you know I know it existed before but you know, wine and cans became a thing. All the ready-to-drink cocktails are a thing now, many of them coming in the can format. But I was approached by a company a couple years ago called Wander and Ivy, and they actually make organically 
made wines from organic grapes and they do single serve wine in glass. Right. And wait, what? Yeah, isn't that crazy? So it's single serve wine and glass. So it's if you've seen a Voss water bottle, yeah. it's yep. like a cylinder. Yep. And then the cap continues the cylinder. It's a plastic cap. Mm-hmm. But that's essentially what their format is. And it's kind of lovely if you think about it. Like if you just want a glass of wine, I mean, that's what we have with beer. Right. You want a beer, just you buy a six pack, you drink two or three mm-hmm. a night and you're good. Right. Uh, or maybe you just want a beer. Um, so so Dana Spaulding started this company and uh, it's kind of a cute story. I'm sure I'll butcher it, but... Uh, her husband likes whiskey and you know you open a bottle of whiskey and it'll last for 200 years probably but uh he would tease her and uh you know she's very health oriented and she'll have a glass of wine but she doesn't want more than that and uh but she'd have a bottle of wine and and he'd tease her that uh, are you gonna waste another bottle of wine tonight because she'd have a, 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 a glass and maybe the next day she wouldn't want a glass of wine and the rest of the bottle eventually would go bad she'd have to dump it out or maybe cook with it or whatever so they had this kind of teasy relationship about this and it, it sort of born, it, you know, it turned into this uh, baby, which is Wander and Ivy. And the reason why I bring it up is because I challenged myself to be a part of something that was innovative. I wasn't the one who did the innovating. I didn't come up with the idea, but I've been really ingrained in working with it to use existing bottling equipment to deliver a sound product, which is really hard to do because um, the the bottles are 187 mils and we're bottling it with gravity fill, Mm -hmm. right? It's not a counter pressure filler. And most of those fillers are rated for a 750. So if you can get under half a part per million oxygen in a 750, you're good, right? If you take half a part per million and you multiply it by four, and I say four because it's four times smaller, right? Yeah. then you get two. Two parts per million oxygen is like pretty close to saturated, right? right. So that's the challenge, right? Huh. Is I'm using traditional equipment that isn't really meant to do 187s. Right. And we've developed some techniques myself and the winery where we make our wine at Napa Wine Company in order to try to accomplish the sure. the the impossible mission so to speak and it's been extremely challenging for me um but I I welcome a challenge I think most people do I think most winemakers do yeah and so it's really inspired me to want to be better to want to be better a better winemaker better at my job better communicator and to work with people that are smarter than me that I admire. There's the key. Work with people that are smarter than you. Yeah, it's true. It's it's true. I see you looking at these guys. You know, I, everybody's smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a low bar. But so so it's for me. It's a little bit of a renaissance, and I appreciated them giving me the opportunity. That's it's cool. A great, great company, and I think you'll see it around. Um, they're incredible marketers, and Dana has a, f- a finance background, so she's done a really good job raising funds for it. And it's a woman-owned company, which is really great too. So give them a shout out again. It's Wander and Ivy. So they're really uh, they're really w- rich on uh, social media, especially Instagram. And you just go to Instagram at Wander and Ivy, yeah. and you'll see a lot of pretty stuff. But so th- it sounds like a great idea. My only 
pushback is like the discussion about glass. Now, I mean, we're we're already having discussions about this glass ending up in landfills, and now you're talking about we're going to produce four bottles for every bottle in essence yeah no that's fair and the cases are heavy right there's 24 bottles in a case um all that's true um i feel like we as a country at least here in america are really good at recycling glass i feel like we're good at that Uh, i think our recycling programs even if people don't put bottles in the recycling bin they're fished out in the garbage stream and you know I, I think they do a really 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 good job about that and they reclaim the glass they certainly do that with aluminum as well with cans can the single so. serve uh, glass be thinner or does it have to be a it certain thing tends to be a little bit heavier oh, okay. um, I'm not sure if that's huh. required but um, perception of quality I think I think it's heavier when you look at the bottle given its size right it's not heavier than a bottle but if you but take if you a case four of them together it would weigh more than one 750 glass yeah I would think so right for sure. I, I mean I it, it I will say the package is attractive and and looks more like a bottle than like a test tube and Which, it also looks like more wine than just a glass. Yeah. But I assure you, if you have a decent size wine glass, if you tip the whole thing yeah. in there, it'll, I mean, it'll go. I mean, you know, if it'll they be, could it'll fit. figure out a subscription sort of thing where, you know, they were shipping it to you, you're drinking it, and you're returning the bottles back to them. There, there you, and you can actually reuse the bottles. Yeah. But that's the ongoing problem yeah. is trying to reuse bottles. No, so, I love it. Aesthetically, I love, I love it. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's um, very, cool. very nice. One of the things that I love about it is that, you know, here we're four dudes and we're like talking to each other about how pretty that is. And yeah. it, it, it's, it's, it's a little confusing to me that that's the case because you know i think we all have uh, appreciate certain aesthetic but this is um you could definitely see how this would uh, appeal to a female audience but just about every guy i've shown this to <laughs> is reacts the same way it's like yeah this is great this is really pretty this is nice it's classy and the wine's good so um, i mean there's well, that's there's, the word classy yeah I mean, yeah. there's no doubt, and this was maybe this can go back to our previous conversation that we were in the middle of. Is that, I mean, in the United States, we've done a very poor job marketing wine from you know the beginnings when when wine started to take off in California, call it in the '60s and '70s, '80s, and where we were like you know wine is for a special occasion. Um, you know, people kind of they wouldn't open wine. It was really kind of a cocktail age, and it's kind of shifted and whatnot. But we always treat wine oddly like I remember when I was learning the business it was always discussed that it was weird that that we tell you what wine's supposed to taste like and we tell you what's good right in our marketing like somehow these judges or or uh, wine writers will tell you what you should buy and really what we should be doing (laughs) is trying to just get people to try wines and figure out what they like themselves right sure um i never thought about that until you just actually said that and isn't that so strange that like you don't have a milk that comes out and says it's a 98 percent rated milk or a clothing (laughs) line where like the jacket is rated a 8.7 out of 10 or are we the only rating system then well, no, I, I mean, mean, I mean, there's more and then there's, you know, beef is rated in different uh, right. things, but, um, but it is sort of strange, I guess, that I never thought about it like that. 
Um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it, it's just kind of an odd way to think about it, you know, as opposed to it just being part of your culture, I think, yeah. from my impression, as it is in Europe, where, you know, you drink, I mean, certainly ratings are important there and, and, and prestige and how it's marketed, but it's also just part of their culture, so they don't think about that so much. They buy the wines that they like and they drink them and they consume them as part of their life, not as a special event or... I, I have a slightly different um, viewpoint of what you just talked about, and that is that I think each one of us would agree that if we walked up to a restaurant and it wasn't 4.30 or 5 o'clock, say it was 6, 6.37, time where you go to dinner, and you look in the restaurant and it's empty, no. you're probably going to turn right around and walk out, yeah. right? Yeah. That, I think, is what people do with ratings is that they don't want to be the ones making the decision themselves they need an endorsement from a third party to tell them that it's good yeah and that's the best analogy i can give for how that relates to me and possibly you yeah i mean i i would say the same thing i go to a wine shop I would more likely buy wine at a wine shop where I could talk to someone and talk through what I'm looking for than I would um, just buying something off the shelf. So, right. but but you're right. I'm I'm looking for that expert, that third person party also. So, uh, yeah, I I would say I'm in the same way. Yeah, um, for sure. Now you you said something earlier about sort of the the gloom and doom of our industry and how do we get past COVID and that whole thing. Yeah. Which is certainly on my mind quite a bit. Old Volkswagen uh, bus, cool. Um, I I feel like uh, I think it's important that we as an industry focus on trying to um, carry on. Number one, you just got to keep doing. And I, I guess I'm telling myself this: you got to keep doing <laughs> doing what you're doing, right? Because this is this is this is what you know this is what we signed up for right this is who we are right try not to make crazy risks right um try try to be cautious because there are a lot of companies i think sadly that are going to go out of business over this eventually and i know a lot of us are suffering now it's kind of hard to say how it's going to pan out ultimately but i also think that because there are fewer and fewer of us left, it's really important that we still exist. Yeah. Because it's becoming just ginormous corporate wine companies, and they buy brands and they they just run them hard and um, or run them into the ground. Well, too. I think that they push hard. You know, the classic example is Constellation buys a brand. They buy Miomi, right? And they spend $500 million or whatever the hell it is. And the fastest way that they can get the return on their investment is to capitalize on the popularity. So, you know, if, if the Wagners got it to 7 million cases, I'm just making numbers up. I don't know what the numbers are. No, I do think it was 700,000 cases that they got to the faster that Constellation can get that brand to 2 million cases is the faster that they could pay the 500 million bill. Right. And then that brand may hit a peak and it'll start going down, you know, less volume every year. But 
every year after they pay the original purchase is gravy. Right. They're just making money and they don't even have to do much marketing because the brand's already established. Right. So, you know, that is the classic. I mean, sure, like I'd sell my brand if somebody was going to pay me that kind of money. Of course, like who wouldn't do that? In case anyone's listening. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the, the bottom line is that I- innovation requires people who are committed to making a difference and to create things that that serve the public, that, that are things that people want. And we're the ones, the smaller operators are the ones that are going to take the chances that will turn into the trends of tomorrow, which ultimately Constellation will want to buy. Right. Now, that shouldn't be the motivating factor of why you do it, I think. But I'm, I'm almost sort of thinking about it serial entrepreneur-wise, right? Put a project together, do a good job at it, run it for however long you run it, and then do the next one, right? and so on and so right. forth. And that's really, I think, how, how this should work. Um, so to try to inspire people to keep doing it, um, to reach higher... There are people listening to this, I imagine, who, you know, that I always wanted to do this. I always wanted to do that. Fucking do it. What are you waiting for? <laughs> I mean, now's the time. Now is the time to do it. So I feel like if you've been sitting on something that you know is a winner and you're just too afraid to step out of the box and do it, I think now is the time to do it. Yeah. And we need it as an industry. And it's going to put a kick in your step to do that as well. So, um, I uh, I hope I hope that inspires a few people that are listening, yeah. and if so, yeah, that gets a for sure. <laughs> cool. Well, that's awesome. Well, anything else, Brian? Uh, n- no, I'm um, a, lot, a lot to contemplate. <laughs> uh, no, super excited actually to hear about progress on the on the space and having the uh, ability to do tastings in the restaurant and um, love the wines. I think we should give people the the um, website you know, the, one the more web time. address so they can actually reach out and just get wine sent directly to them because we have listeners in every single state. Um, so yeah, yeah venomcellars dot com. So yeah. sellers like the wine sellers, venom v i n u m. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we we're on Instagram too. So Venom Sellers dot Valley. So we just uh, started working with uh, a company um, down in uh, Central Coast, and they're doing some marketing for us to help us with uh, direct sales. Yeah. And they're starting to do Instagram. And then I also I, I kind of enjoy Instagram. Yep. <laughs> Maybe inspired by something you said uh, earlier, Bart. Like most everyone's smarter than me, but I can deal with pictures. Right. So, yeah. um, <laughs> so my handle there is Richard Bruno Winemaker, and so I post some fun things, and um, it's uh, a lot of stuff about the vineyard. And um, when my son was playing a lot of baseball, a lot of postings of his home runs and stuff like that. So it's Wait, been how a lot old of is fun. he? He's 18. He's, okay. he's going to Cal Poly uh, this in a couple weeks. Nice. So congrats. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Brian, you were just out watching some baseball. How old were those kids? Uh, 11 and 12 um, oh, at the Little League World Series. That's when that gets start getting, starts getting exciting. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's very yeah. pure. Is he going to play too. ball for Cal Poly? Uh, he will definitely play on their club team. Um, he's talking to them right now uh, about a bullpen catcher position. I, it's not really a position, but they need a bullpen catcher. Yeah. My son's a catcher. Okay. So he uh, is going to talk to them about that. I just want to make sure that, um, you know, he won't be on the team. So um, at least not, you know, if he takes that position. Um, but I just want to make sure that if he gets hurt, that they're going to take care of him. Right. And right. Uh, also um, that it won't interfere with the club baseball. Right. Like if it was like bullpen catcher or you actually get to play on the club right. team, I'd much rather have him play on the club team. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, we'll see. I mean, as long as he gets to play, uh, he'll be happy and I'll be happy. But uh, he's going to the forestry and fire science program. Oh, so, you know what? Cool. Um, do you know Mike Cox? Oh, yeah. Someone recently told me this. Yeah. Yeah. Mike's son is in that same program. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Actually, yeah. That's funny. Someone else told me that last week. So, yeah. Yeah. Alexander. Okay. Yeah. Shout out Mike Cox getting me into the Sonoma Valley Vintners and Growers Association Harvest Kickoff Party the other there night. There you go. Yeah. That was fun. Totally. We had a good time. Yeah. Um, and then what's going on with Harvest? You pretty excited or you yeah. getting, you're getting ready, right? Well, I mean, I just uh, did the bird netting over the weekend and I feel like um, every year it sort of feels like, you know, I'm always late getting X, Y, and Z done. And this year I feel like I've been able to accomplish every task on time and a little time. extra time this so, year yeah. a little bit just a little it's, bit I, I mean good. bird netting too yeah. like if you're behind it's bird the netting worst. then you're behind you're really yeah. behind yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you lose <laughs> lose to the birds yeah so i'm trying out this uh, i'm i'm sort of renting to own a bird laser um it's the brand name's avix with two x's and I don't know if it works yet. To that be sounds so honest. cool. It sounds like you're going to be killing birds with, with lasers. lasers. Oh, I would totally do that, if, <laughs> given the choice. Bastards. They don't like so what exactly <laughs> does this? Do? So here's the theory behind it. So if uh, during the day, if you take a laser pointer and I shine it over there across the table and it hits the wall, you'll see the dot on the wall. Right. But none of us during the day can see the actual laser beam. And it's because we lack an additional oil in our eyeballs that birds have. And so birds can actually see the laser beam during the day. And so this thing is a program pattern that goes throughout the vineyard in sort of a randomized pattern. Um, and it goes from one end to the other and back. And so what it's supposed to do is to scare the birds yeah. to move them on. And they're, they, they're making it's the like claim that they're 83% uh, on the minimum, but he said, you know, with a lot of regulations, you have to like pick the lowest possible number. Right. But he said in practice, it's much higher than that yeah. in the nineties. So there are tons of birds in our vineyard and I see them and you know, what I think I'm seeing right now, we're, we're like just starting Verasion, by the way, we're yeah. pretty late out there. Yeah. And uh, I see the birds all flying around, but I don't see them nesting. So I think they're, it's just constantly getting them to keep moving. Right. But I haven't made any claims yet um, that no. it works. So we'll see. Well, we'll see. Just like with the turkeys, they get used to shit. So yeah. we'll see if a new species of bird arises that is resistant to laser technology. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of similar to what you have for uh, flies. Those little food. things that we put on the yeah, tables for the flies, yeah. they create some sort of hologram image of a huge 
bear, John. I think that's what <laughs> no, it is. I think it just it's just the flashing of it. It's, yeah, it's, it it is. It's it's somehow it appears much larger than it actually is, and so it scares the insects. But I don't. I, like Bart says, I don't know how this shit works. I just know if, if I turn it on, I put two AA batteries in it right. and it spins right. and they're not bugging my guests eating charcuterie, then I'm a happy boy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And if Venom Chenin Blanc tastes good, then buy more of it. And exactly. Birds going through piercing the, the one grape in the middle and then letting uh, the juice run all through the uh, cluster, then more power to them. Let's, let's laser some birds. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, bird. Hashtag bird laser. Right. We'll be exactly. on. We'll be on this podcast. <laughs> we'll call it the the bird eliminator. Oh right. yeah, <laughs> so let's not go too far. I think people will tolerate bird laser. Yeah. I don't know if bird eliminator. You're not yeah. going to see any feathers or smoke or explosions or anything. You just won't see any birds. That's okay. right. Yeah. The days of leaving. Never mind. I'm not yeah. going to go there. <laughs> right. Well, guys, thanks for having me. I you bet. No, thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming. Conversation. On. Thanks for sharing the stories. For yeah. sure. Yeah. All right. The wines no, are delicious. No, no. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Bart, any shout outs? Um, uh, vintage festivals coming uh, uh, 28th and 29th of, sep- of August. No. Um, no. We keep going no, through. September. This. It's in September. September. Thank You're God. Right. It is because September because Rosa would be... I got way too much uh, shit to Rosa would be today. before then. It, Rosa would be today. Um, uh, the 29th is um, the Legends Dinner at BR Cohen. Tickets are for sale. Um, and if you want to get tickets for We Are Hosting or Sponsoring, I'm not exactly sure which. I'm totally confused by the terminology. If you want to sit at the 16600 table... No, if you want to sit at the Dane Sellers table... If you want to sit at the 16600 table, <laughs> Sam, Bart will be at his table. Sam will, you know what? You know what would be awesome? Is we're just is sitting if you're together. A couple, yeah. Is, is get one ticket for Bart's table and one ticket for a 16600 table. And then you can share your wines back and forth. You're going to bring some old shit, some yeah. fun stuff. Yeah. Uh, we're going to do the same and thing. You know what? Each, um, each course you can switch tables. Right. That actually oh. sounds really cool. Let's, you know what? listeners podcast listeners if you want to come to the dinner get two tickets get one for each table and we will happily share the wines with both of you um so that is uh that is friday night september 29th saturday friday night september 29th dinner saturday night saturday night's the dinner saturday saturday is uh, the festival in the plaza all day long and then saturday night is the the grand tasting at Uh, the barracks We'll get this all nailed down. <laughs> I'm sure there's someone in charge. Oh, that's right. There is someone in charge. <laughs> and it's not us. Right. Is there Thank a way God. I could send you guys a couple magnums for that? Of course. Of, of our cab? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, if you just... Um, the magnums that spend a little extra time in oak? <laughs> <laughs> what? No, they're, they're bottled on the same day. Oh, yeah. I, I saw something where you were like, you were, you were like, oh, oh I got these the magnums, four, and they spent the a little barrel. extra time in oak, and yeah. I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool idea. Like, let's do our normal 750 bottling, and then, like, a few months later, we'll do a magnum bottling. Um, okay. <laughs> you were laughing like you like you were like yeah he knows what no, I'm talking. No, it's not. About. We've done that before, just not oh, yeah. on the not okay, on the magnums cool. per se. But and right, of yeah. course, Catherine Russell on the seventeenth. Um, yes, yeah, so September seventeenth, Grenache Day. Are uh, there any tickets left? The, there is still tickets left, and I want to encourage people to bring your chairs. I think that was a message we forgot to put out. We're going to send a follow up email, but um, 
I mean, we only have 200 tickets and I know at least half of them are sold already. So we're getting close to the date. So um, get your tickets. We're going to be pouring great wine and we're going to have good food and it's going to be a beautiful day and it's going to be the best concert Sonoma's ever seen. And it's um, during the afternoon, basically, right? So doors open at four. Concert starts go. at five. Uh, Tony Saunders and Keystone Revisited. And then Catherine will take the stage with the grand piano. And um, all at a barn. Um, it's a barn in a vineyard amazing. in Sonoma. Yeah. Um, and then road. if you want to get tickets for the dinner at the um, Sweet D, the girl in the fig is putting on a great dinner um, for Grenache Day. And you can go to figcaters.com and purchase tickets for that event. I mean, it's one long table of like 100 people. Um, Vicky Carroll from Hospice Tyrone is just lining the entire table with Grenache. It's going to be, um, um, be quite a night. splendorous. And then if you haven't gotten your invite for Friday night party, then you're not invited. <laughs> um, Friday night, we're doing a little special grower and industry and um, winemaker. At an undisclosed dinner. amount. And undisclosed location. And, and if you hear about it and you show up, just knock, do the secret knock on the back door and we'll we'll let you in and the code is phil sent me as always correct um not in that case it won't work not in that case. <laughs> <laughs> it won't work nope. okay yeah um and then uh yeah that's it uh, wine yeah. club's going out soon so exciting all right well thanks for listening everybody sorry yeah. i was late this morning thank you guys running back from napa early so yeah all right thanks richard much appreciated great to be here thank you yeah. pleasure you bet